Welcome back to the Through the Eyes of Jesus podcast. My name is Isaiah Leininger. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend Walker Howell. And today we have a very special guest with us to help us look at the historical accuracy of the Bible. And we'll get into that more later in the episode, of course. But before we do that, go ahead and want to let, let Dr. Rick Brumbach introduce himself. Go ahead and say hello, Dr. Brumbach. Well, hello, and it's my pleasure to get to spend this uh, next uh, bit of time with you and uh, to visit, to chat, to talk about what is undoubtedly a very important topic concerning the Bible, the scriptures, and uh, our reliability and confidence in them. Absolutely. Dr. Brumbach, as we mentioned, is a professor here at Fried Hardman. If I'm not mis- mistaken, is going to be the dean of the graduate department here at Fried Hardman of the, of the theology school. And we're looking forward to all the work that you're going to be putting in for that. Uh, you're going to help a lot of students with well, that. Well, thank you very much. And actually, yes, there's a, a transition and uh, the current director of the Graduate School of Theology, Dr. Justin Rogers, is going to become the Dean of the College of Biblical Studies. And I have been asked and have agreed to become the director now of the Graduate School of Theology. So looking forward to that work and uh, taking part in that particular capacity in the college. Big honor, but also big responsibility, but we're confident in your abilities to to handle that. Thank you. Uh, as, As you mentioned, Dr. Brumbach, this this topic of historical accuracy of the Bible, we've put it into season four talking about apologetics to defend the faith, defend the scriptures, and to show that why we believe what we believe is the truth. This is the season to look at the the questions of, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust God? Can we know that there is a God? Things like that. And as you mentioned, this is a very, very important topic, helping us see that the Bible is not just some old document, but it is historically accurate and relevant to our lives. Absolutely. And in the times in which we live, the 21st century, uh, there is a significant amount of skepticism and criticism that floats around. And I think that it's important for us to be able to have an accurate understanding of all of these issues. And with that understanding, also then be able to respond helpfully when there are questions or doubts The goal, of course, is to help people know the solid footing or solid foundation on which they can stand and to have confidence and comfort in that fact. A little bit about me that might help too with this. Um, I have a tremendous interest in history and spiritual topics, theology, biblical studies. And so I completed my PhD at Baylor University on the topic of historical theology or the area of historical theology. And... um, my dissertation work, I translated an ancient document. It was from about the 300s in early church history. And of course, when you do something like that, you want to give the context and the meaning and so forth. So I had to do a great deal of digging through historical details and who said what, when, how do we know this, etc. In a sense, that's exactly the type of study that we're talking about when we refer to the Bible text, both Old and New Testament. So. Uh, I do take a look at this from an historian's perspective. And um, even before turning into ministry, I was working on, uh, in physics. My training is in engineering and physics. And I worked for the Department of Defense in a research laboratory. Obviously, in a setting like that, we're interested in the details, the data. What does the data tell us? What can we conclude and justify or defend? And then use that to move forward. I think it's important to point that out because when we talk about these details today, that's the type of outlook that I personally bring to the whole thing. I want to have some data or information that I know is reliable. I want to be able to show why it's reliable. 
and then we can use it constructively for the purposes for which it was given. So that's how I've been looking at this particular topic in our conversation for this podcast. And we're very thankful for that perspective and that experience that you bring to the table. We were very excited when you agreed to come on and talk with us on this episode, uh, specifically for this episode. You would have been great for any episode, but especially this one. As you mentioned, this is right up your alley. Uh, right. So we're, we're very thankful to have you on the show. And he also does a lot of videos with the Bible and passages, and so those are also very beneficial and helpful as well. Yep. Absolutely. But before we can uh, actually jump into the topic, as always, we want to make sure that we define our terms. And so when we look at the idea of the historical accuracy of the Bible, what do we mean? Well, when we say historical, right, we're talking about history, right? We're talking about past events. When we're talking about accuracy, we're talking about, you know, the quality of being correct, right? We want to see that what happened in the Bible actually happened in real life. These are not just a collection of stories. This is not a bunch of myths. This is not a fairy tale. Is the Bible, did the events in the Bible actually take place? And that's the conversation that we want to have. And our goal is to prove that these things did happen. Our goal is to prove that the Bible is historically accurate, that we can trust in what the Bible says. Absolutely right. And if there's doubts along that line, then we really are left floating. We don't have an anchor to allow us to say that we have confidence in this or that, which would affect not only our ability to talk knowledgeably with other people, but, I mean, frankly, you and I think about this in terms of application to our own lives. And the simple fact is that I don't want to follow something that is mythical. I don't want to follow something about which I have no confidence or in which I have no confidence. So there's a very strong personal application to this for all three of us. And... It extends, of course, to our listeners and to the people with whom we might have subsequent conversations. So I think this is a crucial topic to be able to discuss. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to go ahead and jump into the the meat of the episode right now. And Dr. Brumbach, we're going to turn it over to you and let you talk about how we should expect what we see in the Bible to align with what we see in other places, other historical documents. Right. So one of the things that strikes me, and we've chit-chatted about uh, in preparation, is that when we read things that we, uh, that we see in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, if we're talking about real developments and historical occurrences, even separate and apart from the spiritual dimension, just the, the realities of the occurrences, then we would expect that there is some connection or alignment or harmonization with what I simply refer to as the general pool of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is, what do we know about things from history, from archaeology, from anthropology studies, from uh, historical studies, things of that type? Because if there's any intersection between what these you know, general non-biblical sources say or talk about, if they connect at all with uh, the same types of events talked about in the pages of the Bible, we ought to see an agreement between them. And that's a really important factor, uh, is the agreement with the general pool of knowledge. The good news is that there are a lot of materials that are non-biblical that we can compare with the Bible and that inform us about uh, things, enhance our knowledge. So being able to make those kinds of comparisons is, I think it's very important for helping us to say we know that what we're being told in the Bible is accurate. Absolutely. And we want to make sure that we kind of expound on some of those things, right? Like you said, we have historical documents, we have historical record, we have archaeological findings and things of that nature that, co- that, that go hand-in-hand hand with what the Bible say. 
Right? Absolutely. If you want to go ahead and, and give us some examples of that yeah. from, from history. Well, there has been in the 1900s and even up to today a great deal of uh, interest in archaeological studies, right? And certainly there was even before then, but we've really seen this uh, expansion, enthusiasm for archaeological digs. And what happens in the process is the discovery of things that have become buried, lost to sight. And with that comes then the synthesizing. What do these discoveries tell us as we integrate them with our knowledge from history, the non-biblical history, as well as Bible texts? And, you know, one set of archaeologists commented about it this way. They said that within the last century and a half, there have been significant questions about cities like Jericho or Bethel or Shiloh or places like that. And oftentimes people wondered, do, uh, do I know that what my Bible says about those places is accurate? The fact is, though, that there's been such archaeological interest and all of these other related fields that we've got more material to compare right now, of course, than any time in, in the past which allows us a better insight into the credibility or the mistaken aspect of whatever claims someone might be considering. So these couple of archaeologists that I'm referring to uh, finally came away that, uh, and they said when we realized that excavating these various cities and dozens more, what it's done, and these are their words, is produced material that confirms the scriptures at point after point. And here's their summary. And especially important for the Old Testament, you know, the farther we go back in time, it's the farther away from us and, and maybe sometimes the harder to, to have material to look at. Mm -hmm. But here was their quote, the Old Testament is fast acquiring a fresh significance. Old Testament history has become incandescent, so glowing with the wondrous archaeological discoveries in Bible lands, and almost every period of that old book has been flooded with new light out of the ruins of the past. So here what they're saying is the more that we're learning through these types of investigations, the greater corroboration we're seeing with the things that our Old Testament texts are telling us. That's significant and something that we really owe ourselves and frankly we owe the Lord to pay attention to. Uh, and so there are some others. That's a general description. We do have a few other things that we can point to along the way, but... Uh, but I think that it's worth mentioning this general outlook from archaeologists and investigators uh, as we come into the new century. Absolutely. I think that's a great thing to look at is just the idea that, you know, like you said, there, there are a lot of questions about things that happened in the past. I mean, we're seeing that even in our own society with things that happened less than 100 years ago. Where we now have people denying some of the things that happened in World War II. Right. And so, you know, if, if that kind of thing is happening now, how much harder is it going to be to see something that happened thousands of years ago? That's exactly right. And you are right to point to the fact that I think it's typical of every age. We need to know what the details are so that we can make uh, justified claims about what history has consisted of, what uh, we do with that information as we move forward. I'll even give you a couple of examples that are drawn from Old Testament connections just to show you how, number one, exciting this is at this point in history where we have so much coming to light, but also how much then it allows us to have confidence in, um, in the things our Bibles tell us. So let me, let me begin by shedding light on a group of people known as the Hittites. Uh, there are about 50, almost 50 passages in the Old Testament that refer to the Hittites. 
And yet, back into the 1800s, uh, people as, as late as that time period were doubting whether or not the Hittites actually really existed as a, an ancient peoples. Well, uh, we're blessed to know that there were excavations, uh, once again, in the uh, late 1800s that not only verified, but repeatedly gave us riches to learn about the, uh, the Hittites of the Old Testament. A, uh, a 19th century uh, archaeologist and seriologist named A.H. Sace identified the Hittites of the Bible with uh, peoples that he has found or they found in their studies and excavations. And then in 1906, a, a figure named Hugo Winkler um, began to do investigations just uh, in Turkey, a little ways from Ankara, Turkey. And what he found was that he was in the capital of the Hittite Empire. And we have all of these different uh, preserved items dating back to the 13th century BC. And, and all of this confirmation is to say that we now have documents that have been preserved. We have excavations of the capital city of the Hittite Empire. The claims that the Bible had made are substantiated. Now, it took a little bit of time for secular studies, if I can put it that way, to find and confirm those pieces, but no one doubts that the Hittites exist. And no one doubts with any justification that what the Bible says about them as a group of people is accurate. And so the Bible comes away from that comparison by, we would say, agreeing very, very helpfully with material that is from outside the Bible as a source of information. In fact, it's interesting to think that at times the Bible can help shed light on historical studies, just like historical studies can also connect and maybe fill in some gaps on Bible history as it's recorded in the Old Testament. That's a, that's a really, really good point, Dr. Brumbach. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to look at the Bible and look at some of the things that the Bible knew and understood thousands of years before we could actually confirm it with our science, before science could catch up with the Bible, right? We see examples like the Hittites, right? Where you, where you were pointing out that, you know, some people were doubting that the Hittites ever existed because they had no proof. Now we have proof. The Bible said that thousands of years before we had the proof. We exactly. also see things like, you know, advancements in medicine or in, uh, in sailing, Things that the Bible knew well before science could prove it. And the, but the Bible and, their, and the inspired authors there knew the, these things to be true, even if they didn't have the proof necessarily at that point in time. Agreed. Absolutely right. And, you know, there is a caution. It's not as if I'm holding the Bible in doubt until I see enough data points by archaeology or medicine or something like that. I would really kind of flip it and say, all along the way, throughout the centuries, even going back, the ancient Jewish people, I mean, they looked at the Old Testament and uh, to them it wasn't old, it was the Hebrew scriptures at the time, right? But they held it in great respect and esteem, they didn't doubt its content. So I look at this as just a, we could say that things that are continually discovered just reinforce the fact that the Bible is accurately giving us this information. Uh, I, I believe it already, and I have all these great reasons to do so. And it's just affirming when there's another piece that's added to, uh, to the whole discussion. So uh, a person is very justified in holding the Bible in, uh, in great esteem. One thing I'd mentioned, uh, by the way, uh, the 2023 FHU lectureship focused upon the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. 
And the reason that I mention that is because Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther talk about the return of the people of Judah and Jerusalem, Judea and Jerusalem, from captivity, Babylonian captivity. And then coming back and resettling the city, the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding aspects of it, the temple, the walls, their homes, all of that. Well, it's interesting that that was the focal point for the 2023 lectureship because Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting figure. He's the one who began the conquest of Judea and Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem. And he is a figure of great interest and connection to some of the things that we're talking about here today. For example, the the prophet Daniel, or the writer Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, he describes a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar, a king that he knew and one he, he dealt with. And there's a statement that's made in Daniel chapter 4 and verse number 30, a simple statement, but very valuable. In a conversation, the king made this statement, and this is Nebuchadnezzar. He said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So in that comment recorded in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, ruler, is in essence bragging upon the types of improvements, the building projects, and the aesthetic elements that he has done uh, in the empire, and certainly in the capital city, even around the palace. Now, here's why that's significant. So he's wanting to beautify and leave his mark. So what archaeologists have uncovered is extra-biblical records that speak about him increasing wall heights in the city, about his practices and beautification about rebuilding the palace that was in Babylon. Interesting. He actually brought in cedars from Lebanon. Hmm. He overlaid them with gold and with jewels, and that went into building the palace and the palace complex. Well, the cedars of Lebanon were used and overlaid with gold and things like that by Solomon when he built the first temple. And uh, even today, people will find dedicatory messages on his, his building projects, bricks, even found today that are stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name and they were used in the various structures. Well, that's all outside the Bible. And you can see these written in cuneiform, acknowledging what Nebuchadnezzar did, and they just amplify the statement that he made that's recorded in Daniel 4 and verse 30 about how he did all of this effort and rebuilding and glorifying and beautifying. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know, someone who is told to us in the Bible and his works are absolutely substantiated by these extra-biblical sources. Absolutely. And, you know, like you said, Nebuchadnezzar plays a big part in the story of the Bible. Right? The people of Israel, the people of Judah have left God and have started following false gods. Mm-hmm. And so God allowed them to be overtaken by Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar. And, of course, Babylon was not necessarily a very nice place to be. Uh, did not treat the Israelites in the way that they should have. And so they, of course, got taken over by the Persians. And we have evidence of that as well. We have record of that. And it's very interesting when we look at the book of Daniel, we see a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. Yes. Talking about the, uh, we, we see a statue that is, is in his dream, a statue with a, a head of gold and a chest of silver, a belly of bronze and legs of iron with feet of iron and clay. Right. And you know, we can look at that and we can see 
how that applies and how that is interpreted to the different world powers, right? We have Babylon as the head and then Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And we can look at history and we can see, oh, wow, Babylon was here and then they got taken over by Persia. Persia was here and they got taken over by Greece. Greece was here and they got right. taken over by Rome, right? Any self-respecting history textbook on that period of time will include those kind of things. And the Bible tells us about them right here in Daniel chapter 2. That's absolutely right. And... Once again, this is not someone projecting backwards onto the Bible text and that dream of Daniel 2, the things that are not there. Daniel explained what it mean or what it meant. And we know for a fact that those different groups, you know, from the Babylonian Empire to the Medes and Persians to the Greeks and Romans and so forth, we know that it unfolded that way. And it's not just the Bible that says that. We can point to that on extra biblical sources. A uh, couple of other connections with Babylonians and the Medes and things that might be of interest. Nebuchadnezzar was followed uh, in his rule by his son, Evil uh, Merodach. And Evil, the front part of his name, is, is just Babylonian naming. It doesn't mean that he's, uh, it's not a moral or immoral statement, right? <laughs> uh, but we do know from 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30, 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, there is the mention of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. and He was you know, conquered and, and so forth. Um, we know that the Bible says that evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, so this is Nebuchadnezzar's son, in the year that he began to reign, he graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Evil Merodach spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So, the Bible says, Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. Every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So, this is the Bible saying, here is this interaction, this dynamic between the deposed King Jehoiachin and the new ruler, Evil Merodach. It's interesting to see that there are preserved cuneiform tablets that confirm these elements. Now, cuneiform is the writing style in the Babylonian Empire. And what would happen typically is they would have a, a piece of clay, a slab, and they would write in it, and then they would fire that clay. It would harden, and it preserves the text. And uh, you have tablets, there are cylinders, all kinds of things like that where these inscriptions are preserved. Well, administrative records from Babylon mention these regular allowances. And here is a quote from uh, one of these clay pieces, right, in cuneiform. For Jehoi Jehoiachin, king of the land of Judah, for the five sons of the king of the land of Judah, and for eight Judeans, each one they would get a sila or sila of grain, in other words, a measure of grain. So here is an administrative record in cuneiform crafted by the Babylonians that points to not just the fact that they received a regular allowance, but it even tells us how much they received on a regular basis. That type of support is what we're talking about. The biblical text and the extra biblical details are aligned or harmonized exactly. Absolutely. And we can point to countless, countless examples of things like this, right? You've already, you've already mentioned uh, things about Nebuchadnezzar, and we've seen things from the book of Daniel that go hand in hand with that, and from Second Kings. 
we can talk about you know the Tel Dan inscription. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you want to go ahead and touch on that if, a little bit, if you're prepared to do that. Yeah, the Tel Dan inscription is important because it's going to talk about invasions that come in uh, from different uh, different peoples outside of you know the nations uh, of Israel and Judah, and in general. The Tel Dan inscription matches the description of these invasions and these international dealings right the same way that the Bible talks about it as well. And so that's another one we could add to uh, the things that we've mentioned already with Nebuchadnezzar and the evil Merodach. they just a little bit earlier in time, but it's the same type of, of alignment. Yeah. And these are just Old Testament examples as yeah, well. We right. have a ton of New Testament examples that we could point to. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we actually have a bit more of that just... Just because we know that um, we're a little bit closer in time. Now, it's interesting we have more in a way from the Old Testament across a long time span because the stories that are told in the Old Testament expand over so many centuries, mm-hmm. right? So there are quite a few things spaced out um, to note, that's true. But for the New Testament, even things that just take place within one century, the century, you know, the first century, we do have connections that also support pieces like that. One of them we could point to, for example, another archaeological discovery is known as the Pilot Stone. The Pilot Stone was a stone that was found in 1961 by archaeologists who were um, digging through and examining the, uh, this great amphitheater in Caesarea on the coastline. Uh, the amphitheater had been built by Herod the Great, so you think right up to and before the birth of Jesus. Well, the archaeologists found in 1961 this stone. It had actually been... <laughs> I guess the new term would be repurposed. This stone, a dedicatory stone, had actually been turned over and used as a step to walk up into the amphitheater. But it was turned in such a way that the text on it was largely preserved. Mm -hmm. And here's what it says. It's in Latin. It's translated to English. It says, to the divine Augusti, which is the divine Augustus's, this Tiberium, and it's a reference to a room, but you see the name Tiberius in it. And then it mentions Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, and then has dedicated this Tiberium. Well, at the time that it was made, Tiberius was the emperor. So having a room dedicated to him in his honor called the Tiberium makes great sense. And the the, uh, divine Augusti is a reference uh, back to Caesar Augustus, Tiberius's immediate predecessor, his adoptive uh, stepfather, his mother, Livia. And then it mentions Pontius Pilate, And, of note, it calls Pontius Pilate a prefect. The term used for the governor that was appointed by the Romans over Judea, a figure like Pontius Pilate, was initially a prefect. Later on, we get to to Felix and Festus and so forth, and they're changed. They're called procurators. So even this has the right term for the right time period and the right figure. And it tells us where he was this governor or prefect. It's over Judea. Now, it's not that it's so much text, but it's the recognition that this was probably carved in somewhere in the late A.D. 20s or early 30s, right? And so it dates exactly to the, to the time of Jesus. And it mentions the right geography, it mentions the right people, and it mentions the offices that they hold. It's exactly consistent with what your New Testament tells us, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we have so many other historical records from the Romans as well, especially talking about the crucifixion, right? Yes. The crucifixion is a big point for us as Christians because that's where we get our hope and our faith from. 
uh, the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And, yes. And Rome not only talks about the art of crucifixion, but we have extra-biblical accounts of Jesus being crucified on the cross. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's one of this really important text. It's written by a man named Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian who wrote the type, uh, the material that you're referring to. Tacitus was a Roman historian in the early 100s, 110, for example. So he's a younger contemporary of the, the apostles, for example. He would have been working in writing at the time period that John uh, was likely on the island of Patmos in AD 96. I mean, that overlaps with Tacitus's life. So Tacitus writes in his records called the Annals, basically the histories of Rome. Annals, book 15, section 44. And he specifically mentions that there was a fire that started in Rome. The people thought that maybe Nero had set the fire. And so what Nero was looking for were scapegoats. Whom can he point to and say they did it and cast the blame on them? And so Tacitus mentions the group. He says that he placed the blame on and then he tortured people called Christians. And then Tacitus goes on and he says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, which he means execution, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators. Notice he calls him a procurator because he's living uh, decades later. And he calls that procurator Pontius Pilate. And then he says that Christianity is a mischievous, uh, evil superstition. And it broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, he says, but also in Rome, where things begin to show up or surface. All right, well, once again, here he is. He acknowledges the existence of Christians. He says they drew their name from Christ. Christ, who is executed by the, the governor Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius that started in Judea and then spread outward and has now landed in Rome. It also shows that Christianity had spread and become significant enough of a class of people in Rome that the Emperor Nero could try to attach, attach guilt to them. So you look at that and it every study and examination says that Tacitus' text here is authentic. Now, today, there are a few voices here and there that are popping up and saying, oh, no, it's been inserted by some Christians later on. But the fact is, classicists and historians have always said and still say today, this is a legitimate, authentic text from Tacitus. And it tells us exactly what the New Testament says about these same matters. We're standing on solid ground, and there's no reason, there's no reason to doubt these things as the New Testament tells us about them. Absolutely. And we've provided already so much proof, and there's so much more that I'm sure that you could talk about, Dr. Brumbeck, that, you know, extra-biblical accounts of things that happened in the Bible, people like Josephus or, yep. uh, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls or, or whatever, you know, there's, there's so many things that we could talk about. And I know that you've taken a few trips over to uh, Israel and things like that and different Bible land areas. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience over there and how the things that we talked about here have tied into what we've or what you may have experienced over there? Uh, thank you. That's a great, uh, a great reference. It is true that I've been blessed a couple of times to make a trip to Israel, trips to Israel, and investigate the Bible lands. I went in 2015 when we were filming material to create the Bible Land Passages videos. 
As we jokingly said, we're going to try to get the viewer as close to Israel as possible without actually boarding an airplane, right? <laughs> uh, but it was fascinating. We covered the territory, we filmed at different sites, and uh, the goal was to investigate and to highlight and to explain through these documentaries that we created the features of life in Israel during the Old Testament time period and during the lifetime of Jesus. And is it okay if I make a shameless plug about that? Okay. For any of our listeners who are interested in doing so, any of us can go to BibleLandPassages.org. Just like it sounds, one word, BibleLandPassages.org. And if you go there and click on the Passages sections, there are 15 different videos that range about an average of 20 minutes long each that are going to try to take you to an area and explain what happened from things like Dan and Tell Dan to the activities of David and Goliath to the activities of Jesus and you know the various things we've discussed. And by going there and looking at these things, um, I have to say, I've been mean, learned a lot more. The Bible came alive to me personally in a way that was even enhanced, right? Because you're there and you're, you're walking, you're seeing the things where these things took place. In the summer of 2018, I was privileged to go back and spend about six weeks going around and looking through places in Israel again. And expanding my studies, uh, gaining you know, footage of videos and uh, pictures and investigations, things like that. So when I see things in the old town of, or the old city of Jerusalem, or when I see things near the Dead Sea, or things up near the Sea of Galilee, what it does is it just enhances and refines an appreciation for what the Bible is describing, and the fact that the descriptions the Bible provides are accurate. Um, I know that not everyone is going to have a chance to go and see those things, but if someone has a desire and can make it happen, all I can say as a traveler who's been there a couple of times is that I can only imagine someone's going to come away and say that enhanced my understanding and blessed you know me as a, a traveler in ways that I might not even have imagined. Like we've been saying, the Bible talks about real people doing real things <laughs> in real places. Mm-hmm. That's and your, exactly right. your experience with Dr. Brumbach helped bring that to light. We're very thankful for that. Well, thank you. You know, Questioning the reliability of these things, I realize, like I said, we live in a time of skepticism and doubt, and that's not anything immediately new. But if you'll let me, I'll mention one that, that ties to visiting, looking, examining, and then, and then coming away with maybe a renewed sense of confidence. Okay. Um, there was a, a biblical scholar and archaeologist in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, so about a century ago, whose name was William Ramsey. Uh, he would, had been a professor of humanities and art at Oxford and then at Aberdeen. He passed away in 1939, right before the start of World War II, right? Well, after his studies himself at Oxford, he was a top performing student. He received a grant to do research on the historical and geographical accuracy of Luke and Acts. So the books of Luke and Acts in our Bible. So what he did is he actually went on site, kind of like I had the chance to do, but he spent a decade in the Mediterranean area investigating the elements of Bible history. Now, what's important about this is to note the attitude he had when he left and then what he had as an attitude after the decade of investigation. Here are his own words that he reported in his book, The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Reliability of New Testament Texts. He said, Acts of the Apostles 
was written by an author who wished to influence the minds of people in his own time by, by a highly wrought and imaginative description of the early church. So when he says highly wrought, that's a little bit older word than we might use. But essentially, uh, Dr. Ramsey is saying, he crafted a story that would fit the time period as if it weren't really true, but he put something together, right? Um, he says that his object was not to produce a trustworthy picture of facts in the period of about A.D. 50, but to produce a certain effect on his own time. Ramsey concludes this little paragraph by saying that Luke wrote for his contemporaries, but not for truth. Well, that gets right at the heart of what we're saying. Now, that's the attitude when he went in. Well, after a decade of work, here's what he says at the end, right? He says, I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it there in the book of Acts. He said, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians and may stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. And then he would say, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. And then finally, he, I'll mention, he says, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. In fact, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Now, he went in skeptical, and he came out with a renewed appreciation for the accuracy of, of Luke, writing the book of Acts, and certainly the book of Luke leading into it. And one of the things about the book of Acts is so precise. He, you mentioned, he mentions so many figures, different offices, different uh, roles that they played. He mentions islands and countries and natural phenomena. He, he just, Luke is so detailed that it gives a person a chance to compare. And when William Ramsey did that, the doubter became a believer, right? He doubted the accuracy and now he believed it. And so what he says would be, you need to read and trust what Luke wrote. And that's true of all the New Testament and the Bible as well. Absolutely. I love that story so much. I've heard it a couple times, and I'm, I'm very thankful that you uh, brought that up uh, for our attention today because, like you said, he went in doubtful. Right? He went in to disprove what Luke had wrote, disprove what the Bible said, and he found out that the Bible was just perfect. Right? It's, it's accurate, yep. it's historically accurate, and it has everything that we need it to have. Absolutely. You're exactly right. And, and that's worth knowing I mean, because no one wants to make a mistake. We want to stand on solid ground. Okay, so what is the data? And that's what this is, and that's what William Ramsey found. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting when we look at, you know, we, we, we trust the Bible, and then we find these extra-biblical sources that confirm our trust, that, as you said, reaffirm our trust. But we can also use history to help us understand the Bible, right? So it's not just a, you know, we look at history and say, oh, this is what the Bible says. We can look at history and say, oh, that's what the Bible means, right? Right. Uh, Example, of course, is the crucifixion, right? We have Roman records of how the crucifixion, crucifixion worked, and it gives us more detail than perhaps we have in the Gospels. It does, and you're exactly right. Crucifixion had been settled on by the Romans as a means of execution for some very particular reasons. Not only were they interested in execution, but they also wanted to teach a lesson with execution, right? And the lesson is, do what we're telling you to do. Don't right. mess with the Rome. That's right. You know, they were really, in some ways, kind of a live and let live uh, environment. However, always respecting the rule of law and Roman rule. So crucifixion was employed, it had been refined 
as a means of execution because of a couple of different things. Number one, the person hanging on the cross could live for days and days. Ultimately, they would become so weak that suspended by their arms, uh, you know, just hanging, they would suffocate. The weight of their body pulling down would collapse or pressure their lungs so much they couldn't draw breath and they would just fade and suffocate. But it's over several days. They would also do this in very common, you know, high traffic areas, maybe along the side of roadways. They would do that in Rome, for example. Slave rebellions, they would crucify figures that were leading those rebellions. And so when they crucified Jesus and the uh, thieves near him, they put them in a very prominent, visible spot. They wanted to teach a lesson. Don't do what you're not supposed to do, right? Um, But that's why it's interesting to note in the gospel accounts, Jesus dies in only six hours. Because the norm is to have people live these several days. When the Bible tells us that the uh, disciples, you've got Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they go back and they ask Pontius Pilate, can we have the body of Jesus to dress him for burial? He's surprised that he's already expired, but he did. He died about three o'clock that afternoon, that Friday. And um, he expired, they gave, you know, they were given care of his body and they uh, took him to the tomb and prepped and buried him. But the others had to have their legs broken. And the reason they wanted them to expire before the Sabbath day began later that Friday evening So breaking their legs would hasten the asphyxiation. They couldn't push themselves up with their feet, even though that would have been painful. Um, Jesus defied that and, of course, did not suffer that. The Bible said none of his bones were broken. That was projected, you know, in the Old Testament stated. And it came to pass that way. But we do learn things about crucifixion from extra-biblical records, and we learn some things as well about their execution methods by looking at what they did to Jesus. Mm -hmm. We would expect that, right? If all of these things are lining up with a general pool of knowledge, the Bible sheds light in Old and New Testament texts on practices of those times, and sometimes the extra-biblical texts will fill in gaps as well in things we know in the Bible's pages. What's important is to see that they're both supporting each other. They're accurate. The Bible is reliable. Absolutely. And uh, you alluded to how Jesus um, died within six hours of him being put on the cross and things like that. Right. And I know this question isn't necessarily uh, immediately relevant to what we're discussing, but I know there may be some viewers who are maybe curious as to how that actually ha- Is there any like evidence that shows like what may have sped up his process of dying, or is it just that that's just how Scripture recorded it? or is That's a really good question, actually. And we know that... We know that they had to speed up the death process for the thieves that were there. They would break their legs. And the reason is because the Sabbath day is an important day for the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And so we're told in the Bible that the Jewish leaders did not want these persons hanging on the cross, moaning or groaning, things like that. Natural death processes. The visibility that the, the Romans wanted with these crucifixions, the Jews didn't want present on their Sabbath day. And remember, this is, uh, this is a holy day or a holiday, a feast weekend as well, right? And so they wanted out of sight and out of mind. We don't know why Jesus expired so rapidly. I mean, I can't point, of course, nobody can point to any physiological process that made it happen faster. Gotcha. We just know that it did. Gotcha. And as a result, there was no breaking of bones needed mm-hmm. and his body was taken down. So... Um, they were surprised as well that he had already expired. 
I think God's way, he was there. Jesus is recorded as having said seven different statements to either God the Father or to the people who were down below. Seven different things we have recorded during those six hours that he was on the cross. But when he finishes the purposes that he needed to serve, he was allowed, he just simply expired and his agony came to an end. I think that's a great question, Walker, and I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. Right? But like, like we've been saying, and as you pointed out earlier, Dr. Brumbeck, the Bible and history do not conflict each other. The Bible and science do not conflict each other. Why? Because God is the God of science. He's the God of history. Exactly. Right? God created those things. And I think, you know, it's something that I've just been struck with again and again while we've been talking about extra biblical sources and, and his, historical artifacts and things of that nature is just the providence of God. Right. And how God has worked through ordinary people to preserve those artifacts and, and archaeological finds that we have today that give us confidence in the God that we serve. Exactly right. And I think that that's an important uh, point to make is it's important to know that the Bible is telling us truth, and it is. And another aspect of that is that the Bible has made it through the centuries accurately so that what we read we know is, in fact, what happened. Um, we don't want to be standing 2,000 years later and realize, oh, something happened about the Bible text. It's been corrupted. It's not reliable. Uh, it was good for a while, and then people accidentally or intentionally messed it up. We don't have to worry about that. The fact is the Bible has been transmitted through the centuries to us in a fashion that is extraordinary in terms of its preservation and the accuracy um, with which it was transmitted. It is no exaggeration. It is absolutely demonstrable that the Bible that you and I would read from today is the same, at least Old Testament text, that Jesus would have known about and read when he went to synagogue, that the early Christians were reading the same Bible text that we have, although, of course, they were coming out book by book going through the first century. But when the Thessalonians re received 1 Thessalonians, they're reading the same text that you and I read when we open the book of 1 Thessalonians today. There's no difference. Of course, in a, in a Greek. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is that. They're reading it in Greek, and we... Uh, owe much to the people who have made really good translations. And, and if I may just say, I know people often look to the first century and think, oh, it's extraordinary that uh, there were all these miraculous activities and the apostles could speak in languages that they'd never studied to communicate the gospel. That's true. But today is even a step above that. Believe it or not, and this is a strange thing perhaps to wrap our minds around, but if that were the best way of transmitting the text, it would have continued. Mm -hmm. But what we have, and God knows this, we have people who are learned and capable of making translations of the Bible into all different languages. And then it can be printed, it can be distributed, it can be studied, we can post it on the internet, <coughs> we can do it through a podcast. But the, the fact is, the text that we have is accurate and it's reproducible, i.e. we can copy and share it so that virtually anyone around the world can have access to God's word, which is, well, Paul said, I commend you to, to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you a, an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. And that's exactly what we possess is that word. Yeah. And again, I just, I go back to the providence of God and, 
and the foresight and the wisdom that he has to give us these things, the, his word and, and extra biblical sources that confirm it for us. You know, just what a great God that we serve. Absolutely. And I think if we want to make application from what we've said today, we can know that what the Bible says is true. And therefore, we should follow what the Bible says about moral teachings, about obeying God, about worship, things of that nature, because we can trust that this book really is not just any old book. It is God's inspired word. He breathed out this word, and we still have it in an accurate and readable form for us today. Absolutely. You know, I've got to wonder if maybe one of the biggest... I don't know. I hesitate to say insults, but my mind goes that way. One of the biggest insults or perhaps signs of sign of disrespect would to know would be to know that the Bible has been preserved as God had it written and recorded, that it's been translated and transmitted through the centuries, and I have it available right at my fingertips. And then for me to turn around and walk away and not make use of it says that I don't value the tremendous privilege that I've been given to know the thoughts of God that are found in his word. The travesty would be someone having it and not using it. The greatest way to show you know, our appreciation for what it represents and what it informs us so that we can take advantage of God's work and Christ's sacrifice is to study the book and to become familiar with its contents so that the teachings sink deeply into our hearts and our minds and then we use those teachings to guide our footsteps through life. That's exactly what the Lord wants. Yeah. Psalm as, 119, verse 105. Absolutely. And as, uh, to, uh, to further that point, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? Exactly right. Right. And, you know, that word is a light to our path. It helps us to know where to go and how to live a blessed life. Absolutely. The Bible is a beautiful book. And we've, we've talked about this uh, on our episode on the relevancy of the Bible with Alex uh, DeGraves. And there are so many things in that episode that we didn't even get get to that we wanted to, talking about how the Bible is relevant for us today. But we, we talked about you know the comfort and the strength and the encouragement that the Bible gives us, right? And it just, it's such a beautiful message for us. It's a message of love and of hope and of, of faith for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And God, he picks us up when we're down. He blesses us by knowing of him and Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead's work on our behalf. He seeks to do what sometimes people refer to as the two Ps. He wants to protect us from harm, and he wants to provide for us the things that we need to succeed. And not just in this life, but through this life into eternity as well. Mm -hmm. And we read about those things, we become informed about them, and have the possibility of responding to God appropriately by paying attention to the things that he's preserved in his word. That's why he's so concerned that it be reliable, that it reach us reliably, and then that we take it and use it for its intended purposes. I think that just about wraps up this episode. I think we said everything that uh, we wanted to say. Obviously, again, there's so much more that we could say about this topic. But Dr. Brumbach, we're so thankful for you and and for the time and effort that you put into this study to help us and our listeners understand just how amazing the Bible is in terms of the historical accuracy of it. Well, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to be a part of this program, and I'm grateful for the good work that you're doing. All I can say is that I encourage myself, all of us, and all of the listeners to, to consider seriously 
the teachings of the Bible and to incorporate them into life and live according to God's instructions. No one is ever going to get to the end of their life having been a faithful child of God and look back and say, I wish I had not been a Christian. Mm -hmm. But there will be people who get to the end of their life and say, I wish I'd made other choices and done what the Lord directed earlier on. Mm -hmm. We want to be blessed. And here's a God who wants to bless us. And his book shows us how. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name. Exactly. Well done, that good and faithful servant is the things we want to hear. That's right. Yeah. And um, the link to the uh, the website that Dr. Brumbeck mentioned earlier will be in the show notes, and you can find it on our website as well. And um, and we encourage you to go check that out. I've watched a few videos for one of the classes I took for him last semester, and it was really good and really informational. So I encourage you to go look at those. Um, and then I guess we'll go ahead and – oh. Can, can I make one more Absolutely. somewhat shameless plug? Absolutely. <laughs> and I appreciate you allowing this. And really because the more we can connect people with resources and, mm-hmm. and things that help, the better. Uh, not only the BibleLandPassages.org, but I have, um, I'm in the process of continuing to build and expand a website called WalkingInJesusWorld.com. It's all one word, just small letters, no punctuation. WalkingInJesusWorld.com. There's no apostrophe on Jesus there, but um, what it's intended to do is to be a site. It's it's under construction still, and I admit that, but there are pieces that are already in place, and you can see where it's going as a site, and it'll continually be improved, but it is a place where we are trying to discuss the things that we read about in Jesus' life and his world to help people know some of the details. Who were the Pharisees? Who were the Sadducees? What were the circumstances of Jesus' upbringing? And um, the flight that his family made to Egypt, for example, to preserve his life from Herod the Great. Who were the apostles and what did they do? What were the sites that Jesus went and did such extraordinary works and teachings? All of those kinds of things are either currently found in that site or will be as we continue to populate it. Again, it's under construction, but great promise and uh, hope that it's a real blessing to anyone who would like to know more about that place, that time, the life of Jesus. And as always, we want to encourage our listeners to do their own study, not just to take what we're saying at face value, but to look into these things like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 to see if the things that we're saying are true. Uh, We always want to encourage more study. And if you have any questions about something that we said in this episode or something that we said in another episode or just a question about the scriptures at all, we would love to sit down and talk with you about these things. As Walker mentioned, you can find us at our website, tteoj.com. We also have a Facebook page, Through the Eyes of Jesus Podcast. We have an Instagram and a Twitter, tteoj underscore podcast. You can reach out to us on any one of those platforms. We would love to sit down and talk with you about the scriptures. And if we can't, if we don't know the answer, then we have great resources around us like Dr. Brumbeck to help us figure out your question. If there's nothing else that needs to be said, gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and close the episode off in prayer. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the blessing that it is to worship you, to praise you, to love you as you have loved us. Lord, you have given us your word, and, and that is more than enough, Lord, but you have also given us so much outside of your word. You've preserved artifacts and documents for us that just tell us over and over again how truthful you, your word is and how much we should trust you. Lord, you are a great God. Lord, you are a loving God. Lord, you are such a wise God. And we're so thankful for all that you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to take what is in your word 
and apply it to our lives. Put it on our hearts and live it out, Lord. Help us to always seek after you and to put you first in everything that we do. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.